I'm here to start a revolution, populist movement. But first, let's review a little church history. Uh, we're about 2,000 years into the church age. After the first 1,500 years, we had a little problem. That led to a movement we today call the Protestant Reformation. In his uh, infamous uh, History of the Christian Church, eight volumes, Philip Schaff, uh, in the late 19th century, uh, described three fundamental tenets of the Protestant Reformation. Can you think of them? Any of them? Come on. It's okay. Yes. Sola Scriptura. That was the that was the first and the main one. You're right. And that is the Bible is the only inspired source of authority for the Christian, not human tradition, not the teachings of men. The Bible is the sole and highest source of authority for Christians. Right. How about another one? Yes. Sola fide. Uh, salvation is by faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross. No effort by man, no works by man. Right. There's nothing you can do to earn it. And the third one, the third one was the priesthood of all believers. Now, initially, the priesthood of every believer referred to the fact that every Christian can approach uh, God directly in Christ. I don't need to go through a human mediator to approach God. Um, it also means, though, and the other part of that is that uh, for every Christian uh, plays a vital role in the ministry of the church. Every single Christian is gifted and called to play a vital role in the ministry of the church. But, you know, that part, uh, we still haven't fully realized the priesthood of all believers. I'm going to do something with this if I can. <laughs> we still rely too much on the professionals to do most of the ministry. And that's just not how it was designed to be, is it? The professionals uh, certainly have their role. They have a very real place to play. And when I say I'm here to start a revolution, I'm not here to overthrow the professionals. <laughs> I'm here to, to tell us what all the rest of us ordinary people have to do, what our role is. Um, the professionals do most of the work of the ministry, and we rely too much on programs and materials to do the ministry. So our church's impact is greatly limited. Now, that's like having the head coach run all the plays uh, and play all the positions himself. Does that happen? No. The coach coaches. The players play and the whole team wins the championship. There's a great quote by that eminent theologian John Stott who said this. The first Reformation put the Bible in the hands of the layman. The second Reformation will put the ministry in the hands of the, of the people, of the layman. Now, perhaps the best and most succinct passage on church ministry dynamics is found in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So let's flip there and read that. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry or service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, as I read that, I see four key principles in that little passage, those three little verses, very succinct statement of church ministry dynamics. First, I see that Jesus raises up leaders of various gifting and function. They each have a separate role to play. But what is their main job? Second principle, the leaders equip the saints, that is all us ordinary Christians, God's people, to do the work of ministry. 
And it's the saints, the ordinary Christians who do the work of ministry. And what is the ministry that they do? Well, uh, they're in the process of building a unified body of mature disciples. You with me? Jesus raises up leaders. Leaders equip the people and the people are the team that do the ministry. And the ministry that they do is building a unified body of mature disciples, plain and simple. Now, in reality, does it work like that? Often what happens is leaders do most of the ministry themselves using sophisticated programs and materials, while the rest of us mostly watch. And ministry often is little more than having the saints go through those programs and materials. Huh? Would you agree with me on that? Are you out there? Okay. <laughs> I don't do as well unless I see some audience response. Sorry, you'll have to. <laughs> yeah, but see, it's the saints who are supposed to play the most vital role in advancing the kingdom because they do the work of the ministry, which is primarily about disciple making. You have, in other words, let's just say that you have the best role in the church. All of you sitting out there today and me. We have the best role in the church because we are the ones who get to get on the field and play the game and win the championship or not. Now, let me ask you this. Um, do you raise your children primarily by taking them through programs and materials and relying on professionals to raise them or train them? Or do you raise them yourselves in your home a few at a time? Yeah, I don't have to ask that, do I? Uh, you don't rely primarily on programs, materials, groups. Actually, what you do is you're intimately involved in the lives of your children um, through life-to-life relationships, aren't you? Yes? <laughs> okay. Now, uh, in The Lost Art of Disciple-Making, Leroy Imes rightly asked this question. Why are fruitful, dedicated, mature disciples so rare? The biggest reason is that all too often we have relied on programs and materials or some of the thing to do the job. The ministry is to be carried on by people, not programs. He goes on to say the mature disciples are not mass produced. He's quoting again. We cannot drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of a production line. It takes time to make disciples. It takes individual personal attention. It takes patience and understanding to teach them how to get into the word of God for themselves how to feed and nourish their souls, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, how to apply the Word to their lives. And it takes being an example to them of all of the above. Now, to get to the root of this issue, I think we need to understand the difference between the Hebrew and Greek concepts of education. I know some of you have heard this because I'm like a broken record. Anytime I'm asked to speak, I always talk about the same thing, so I'm not going to apologize for that. Now, um, I think understanding, though, the distinction between the Hebrew and Greek concepts of education will help explain why biblical disciple making is something of a lost art. Today, education involves a monologue on a particular subject in a sterile classroom with students who sit passively and take notes like what we're doing right now. <laughs> uh, well, the Hebrew concept of teaching, though, was far richer it certainly included instruction, but it also involved extensive hands-on apprenticeship style training. In fact, the Greek verb mathetuo, which translates as make disciples in the Great Commission from Matthew uh, 28, 19, means not only to learn, but to become attached to the teacher and become his follower in life, conduct and doctrine. 
Now, that's distinguished from other verbs, similar verbs, that simply mean to learn without any particular attachment to the teacher. But see, not this verb. Make disciples mean not only do I listen and learn the doctrine of Jesus, but I become his follower. I become attached to him. I model my life after his life. It becomes the basis of my life and my conduct. And it was this life-on-life phenomenon that facilitated the transfer of information and ideas into concrete situations in the Hebrew worldview. Um, Because the Hebrew worldview is a life-oriented worldview, and it's not primarily concerned with concepts and ideas in and of themselves. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand... They developed a disengaged and passive environment of the classroom. Uh, in diagnosing the cause uh, for the state of modern discipleship, uh, this author named Alan Hirsch uh, in The Forgotten Ways asked this question. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to read a little, little bit from his uh, passage. How did we move so far from the ethos of discipleship passed on to us by the Lord? The cause lies in Western Christianity being so deeply influenced by Greek or Hellenistic ideas of knowledge. Essentially, A Hellenistic view of knowledge is concerned about concepts, ideas, and the nature of being. The Hebraic, on the other hand, is primarily concerned with issues of concrete existence, obedience, life-oriented wisdom, and the interrelationship of all things under God. As Jews, Jesus and the early church quite clearly operated primarily out of the Hebraic understanding rather than a Hellenistic one. Make sense? I also think that modern industrialization and mass production can account for the loss of this apprenticeship uh, ethos. You know, from colonial days back to the beginning of time, pretty much, everything was learned through apprenticeship or discipleship style training. You want to be a blacksmith? You attach yourself to a blacksmith. You want to be a lawyer? You attach yourself to a lawyer and you study under him uh, for years and then learn the trade. And so, of course, when we were discipling, Uh, young people or people to be uh, mature, fruitful disciples of Christ, it was the same way. Well, see, now we mass produce everything. Now, I'll I'll say that doctors probably come the closest to still practicing a certain amount of of apprenticeship style training when you do residency. Right. Um, But not many other professions do that. And we sure don't do that so much in the church. The assumption in Hellenistic thinking is that if people get right ideas alone, they will simply change their behavior. But it doesn't work that way, does it? The key to transforming lives is found in the ancient art of disciple making, which operates best uh, from the Hebraic understanding of knowledge, which asserts that right acting alone does not lead to right thinking. See, Hirsch concludes uh, I'm sorry, that right acting leads to right thinking. <laughs> the, the, the Hellenistic mindset was that right thinking will lead you to right acting. The Hebrew mindset was the exact opposite. Right acting, obedience, will lead you to right thinking. See the distinction? So Hirsch concludes that we, we need to take the whole person into account in seeking to transform an individual and educate them in the context of life for life. And it's the ordinary people uh, who are called to do the ministry, just like all us ordinary people raise our own children, right? Programs and materials certainly have their place. They support, they complement, they supplement, but they are no substitute for life-to-life relationships. Now, let me stop here and ask a question. What do you think of my PowerPoint? 
I find that when it's hot and miserable in Texas, I feel a lot better and I'm more inspired if I can look at mountains. So instead of putting all my notes up on top, I got pictures of the Rockies and Blue Ridge for you to look at while I'm talking. So hopefully you'll feel a little better. <laughs> Is it working so far? Good. Good. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about then the role of ordinary Christians. I'm over in Jude 3, the brother of Jesus. Here's an interesting little verse here. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to all the saints. The saints. Now, I'd like to uh, look at an interesting passage over in Nehemiah chapter 3, if you want to bear with me for a minute, because I think Nehemiah contains some great principles on how the body ought to all work together. Well, let me give you a little background, set the stage here. Nehemiah, of course, is the last great godly leader of the Old Testament, isn't he? Um, Israel, the northern kingdom, is taken into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C. In 586, Judah, the southern kingdom, is taken into captivity by Babylon. Uh, Zerubbabel leads the first exiles back to Judah in 538. The temple's rebuilt in 515. Ezra led a second group back in 458 and led a reform among the people. And then finally, Nehemiah, uh, in the third wave, returns to Judah in 444 B.C. to rebuild the wall and the social structure of the country. Now, he had a Cush government job in Persia, right? But he became burdened by the state uh, of his homeland and his people uh, back in Jerusalem because the wall was broken down uh, and the gates were burned with fire. And he became very burdened in his soul. And he spent some time praying and repenting for his people and then reminding God of his promise to rebuild the people and rebuild the wall, right? And so he puts his neck out on the line, steps out in faith, goes to the king, I love this, and asks for permission to rebuild the wall. Uh, I want the king to pay for all the construction materials, and I want a free military escort back to Jerusalem. What do you say? Okay. <laughs> Gives it all to him. Uh, the king grants all his requests. He goes back to Jerusalem. He scouts out the scene, plans the project, uh, recruits the local leaders and the people to start rebuilding. And meanwhile, in spite of all this, he's having to fight off all this direct and indirect opposition uh, to the rebuilding by the enemies of, of Israel. And so Nehemiah is both building and battling, which is the heart of all ministry, building and battling. And that leads us then to chapter 3. Now, if you look at chapter 3, you're going to say, how are there important principles in chapter 3? Because all this is is a list of names of guys who are working on the wall. Amen. That's exactly right. Here is a list of names of the wall builders by name. I love this. Side by side, shoulder to shoulder, all these people are working together to rebuild the wall. And the, re and the wall is rebuilt. How fast? Anybody know? Record time. Fifty-two days. Fifty-two days they rebuilt that wall. And why? Because the priests, the Levites, the local leaders, the tradesmen, the merchants, families, neighbors, and friends from other parts of, of the country all work together. In other words... The clergy, the professionals, the missionaries, 
and especially the large number of local and out-of-town laymen all worked together to build the wall. And so their wall was built, rebuilt in record time. Let me read you just a quick excerpt here. I'm in chapter 3, 1 through 5 and 7, then I'm going to skip down to about 20. And I may butcher a few of these names, but just bear with me. Eliashab, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassana. Merimoth repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam made repairs. And next to him, Zadok also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. Next to them, repairs were made by men of Gibeon and Mitzvah. And I'm going to skip down to verse 20. Next to him, Baruch zealously repaired another section. Next to him, next to him, next to him. And it just goes on and on, listing off by name uh, the families and the people that are rebuilding the wall here. And then finally it ends uh, by saying, um, And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. You know, it's fair to conclude when you read this chapter that without all the laymen, uh, the job could not have been done. Each person pulled their weight and built their section of the wall. And together, the wall was rebuilt. And I think that's a good illustration of how ministry is supposed to work. We all have a job to do. And if we all pull our weight and all do our part, then the wall is going to get rebuilt. And uh, it reminds me of 1 Peter 2, 5 that says, You as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Peter speaking there. Now, I believe that the ordinary Christian, the saint, uh, who is involved in ministry, serves in two primary roles. One as a tent maker and two as a laborer. Now, both of these terms are metaphors. A tent maker now is a metaphor for a layman who is also involved in ministry. Uh, A laborer is a metaphor for disciple makers. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about tent makers for a minute. Now, we throw that term around, tent maker, uh, and when we think of tent maker, what do we think of? We think of a guy who has to get into a foreign country, and he can't go as a missionary because they won't allow him Christians, so he goes in as an engineer or, or an English teacher, never as a lawyer, doctor, other things, right? <laughs> they don't like lawyers everywhere else. <laughs> um, but in Paul's day, a tent maker was a skilled craftsman who worked in leather and silicium, and that's cloth woven from black, long-haired goats that was used by armies, caravans, and nomads. It was an actual trade. He was a tent maker. Now, Paul had both a trade as a tent maker and a profession as a rabbi. Now, a rabbi was kind of a combination between a minister, uh, a teacher, and, and a religious lawyer all in one. And then, of course, later he became an apostle, right? Now, it was proper for a rabbi to practice a manual occupation so as not to profit from his spiritual teaching. Uh, And by the way, when you think of rabbis, recall that these rabbis were not Levites. The the Levites were the one who were supported by the right. The other the other 11 tribes. And and it's certainly right. And don't hear me saying we should be supporting our pastors, our our full time professionals. We should. But that's only one percent of the population. You know, in Israel's day, it was uh, what one twelfth of the population. Today, it's probably less than one percent. Does that mean all the rest of us are excluded from being involved in the ministry? Well, that sure wasn't true in Paul's day. Um, And in fact, the rabbis were not Levites. Uh, They were from a variety of tribes. And it was a rule among the Jews that every young man, whatever his profession, should also learn a trade as a resource in time of need. In theory, no rabbi took fees but supported himself. 
So for Paul, before he became a master in Israel, he had to master a trade. Now let me read a couple of verses here. Acts 18, 2 through 4. Paul went to them, referring to Aquila and Priscilla, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. You see that? He went and worked. He was, he was like an independent contractor working for Priscilla and Aquila in their business. They owned the tent making business here. As he's traveling around, though, he works for them for a while. And then what does he do in his spare time? He says on the weekends, he's preaching the gospel. All right. Let me read another passage uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Uh, his last message to them, he says, you know that I have. I'm starting at verse 20 and then I'm going to skip down a little. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. That's revealing, isn't it? I taught you in a large group and I taught you in fellowship families. <laughs> The word of God. And let's skip down to verse 35, 4. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. Guys, you know that I supported myself and not only myself, but my whole staff. And why did I do this? To set an example for you. To build credibility. I'm not trying to mooch off of you. I'm trying to serve you and build you up. So, now, of course, there were times uh, when Paul was supported by the churches. In fact, he'll say, I'm passing through and have your gift ready for me when I get there. You know, it's fairly aggressive at times. Um, but I believe his lifestyle was an example to others and it established credibility for his ministry. See, he worked hard like the people he was trying to reach, but he devoted much of his free time to the ministry and set an example for the rest of us. He purposefully modeled a fully integrated lifestyle of both vocation and ministry and thus lived mostly as a tent maker. Now, You say, well, that's well and good. Is it reasonable to think that we can live like tent makers in our day? Well, is it? Is it reasonable to think that we can balance the demands and pressures of work and be meaningfully involved in discipling a few people or leading a small group or serving wherever you you are gifted to serve? Is that possible? Many of you do that. Many of you in this room I know do that. Um, and yet, you know, there is this there's this mindset in the American church that uh, we expect the professionals to do most of the work. And you guys are like the fans at a football game. You just sit back and enjoy and take it all in. But I just don't think that was God's design. You know, our, in our day, a tent maker is a self-supported minister or a missionary or someone somewhere else doing the ministry. But we don't think of tent makers of people that live here in America. Well, why not? You know, the reality is 99% of all Christians won't be professionals. 99% will not be professionals. Let's just add that up at our church. We have, what, 500 members of this church? How many professionals do we have serving? Raise your hand. Five. (laughs) There's five. Jeb sitting around here, and I can count two others, and let's count the staff. Let's say ten. I'm probably miscounting that, but let's say roughly, right? Not that many, is it? It's not even uh, 50 people, which would be 10 percent. It's five. It's really more around one, two percent. You know, and a longtime mentor of mine said to me, you know, we just can't hire enough people to do the job we've been called to as Christians. All Christians 
in my opinion, should think and live like tent makers wherever they live in the world. Now, how does that work out for you? I don't, you've got to figure that out yourself. I can tell you how it's worked out for me. I've been meaningfully engaged, I believe, in ministry for 25 years now. In 1986, uh, I got involved with a guy who was in a disciple-making ministry uh, down at A&M uh, with the Navigators. And I thought, well, I don't have time to do this. I've got a job. I've got kids. I've got responsibilities. But he met with me for a while, and then after a while he said, you know, I'd really like you to help me uh, lead this Bible study. I thought, you know, I just don't know if I can do that. I'll, we'll try. And, he said, and then he said, you know, uh, I'd really like to see you uh, engaged and meet with a few guys yourself and discipling them. I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a try. And see, over time, he helped me learn how to work that in with my life. And then God brought in another guy in my life some years later, uh, an older older man who's been a longtime mentor of mine now for at least 17 years. He's 80 today. He's been discipling men for probably 60 years. And he's primarily a commercial real estate investor. He's not, he's not a professional in the ministry, but he's a guy that's meaningfully involved in ministry and has been his entire adult life. He's figured out how to integrate vocation and ministry and balance life. Now, what's the, what's the modern American value principle? It's something like this. It's like, I'm going to give my whole life to work. If there's anything left over, I'll come to church and occasionally help with the picnic or something, right? It's sort of like, you know, work gets first priority. Well, well why can't we find a way to say, well, I'm, I want to balance the two. I want to integrate the two to be a part of the church's calling to make disciples all over the world. Yeah, I believe we can do that. I know a few people who try to live like that, but there's not that many out there, honestly. We all, though, have a section of the wall to build, and if we all participate, that wall is going to get built. It is. All right, let's talk about the second. Uh, I've got a few more minutes here. Let's, let's knock this out. Laborers. What is a laborer or a worker? Your version may say worker. What exactly do they do? Um, you're familiar with the passage, Matthew 9, 36, 37, where Jesus sees the people and he sees a weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And what does he say? Harvest is plentiful, but the laborers or the workers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, but it's not supposed to stay that way. Pray that God will raise up more laborers to go into the harvest to invest in the lives of people. 1 Corinthians 3, 8 and 9 says, The man who plants, this is Paul speaking, The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his labor. For we are God's fellow laborers or workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, what is a laborer or a worker? It's someone who makes disciples. It's someone who invests in the lives of people to build them up to maturity and fruitfulness in Christ. Now, he's something more than just a disciple himself. Um, He is someone who is willing to engage and invest in the lives of other people. He pours his life out for others. His goal is to see them become like Christ in every part of their lives. And I tell you, one of the best passages, and I'd like you to turn there, is 1 Thess 2, 7-12. And I'd like to just walk our way through that briefly in the last few minutes. This is Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica. 
And he is describing in, in just these few five or six verses, he really describes the nature of his laboring in their lives and of his disciple making ministry to them. Verse seven, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you, believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I want you to notice all the word pictures in this, in this little passage here. Let's use verse 8 as kind of our anchor verse. So affectionately longing for you, we will well please to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you become so dear to us. I didn't just give you a little message and move on. I gave you my life because I love you. I care for you. And how have I loved you? Verse 7. I was like a nursing mother to you. Can you think of a more intimate picture than a nursing mother tenderly caring for her new baby? No more intimate picture. Then he goes on after verse 7 and verse, uh, verse 9 through uh, uh, 10 there. He describes himself as a blameless brother. I've pulled my weight. I have not, I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm not here to use you. I want to help you and serve you. And not be a burden to any of you. And so I've acted blamelessly among you. He is a blameless brother. And then verse verse 11, uh, you see that he is uh, exhorting, encouraging and imploring each one of them as a father would his own children. He is an exhorting father. He describes his ministry as someone who is a nursing mother, a blameless brother and an exhorting father. And what's his purpose? It's right there in verse 12. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There is no more, I think, succinct, beautiful little picture of what disciple making is all about than right there. That's what it's all about. That's what a laborer does, investing in the lives of people. It's just what you do with your children, right? Or what you hope to do with your children. Well... As a laborer, you are a friend, a mentor, a coach, a brother, a sister, and you're ministering both to foundational needs and felt needs. Foundational needs are those areas that we all need to grow in. We all need to learn to read the word of God for ourselves. Uh, we all need to learn to pray, right? We all need to learn to deal with issues of sin. We all need to develop healthy, strong relationships. We all need to learn what our gift is and be meaningfully involved in serving others, right? And giving and so forth, right? Foundational needs. What are felt needs? You know what? We all have special issues. We all bring certain baggage to the table. We all need help. And so we want to help people with their felt needs, just like doctors do. Where does it hurt? And when they describe what's wrong, you want to help them in those areas. But it's both foundational needs and felt needs. You are both uh, providing encouragement and accountability. <laughs> encouragement, I want to help you make it, and accountability. I'm willing to call you on the carpet. That's what it takes. I'm willing to be a nursing mother to you, but I am also going to be an exhorting father where, I'm, where I need to be. 
That's what it's all about. That's what a laborer does. That's who a laborer is. And here's the rest of the story, though. A laborer has no rank, no status, no prestige. His ministry is largely unheralded. No one's going to pat you on the back. You're not going to stand up here and give a nice little talk from time to time. Your work's going to be mostly behind the scenes. And let me tell you, you people are going to be the most rewarded people in heaven. Those who are the laborers, the common everyday people who don't need attention, who don't need to stand up and say something and look good in front of everybody else, but that faithfully invest in a few other people. That's, that's what God's looking for. And in my opinion, that is the greatest ministry in the Christian church, is the ministry of the laborer. Most of what we do, honestly, is, is uh, I'm going to call it a, a two-dimensional ministry, and it's very important and good. We need someone to take up the offering. We need someone to stand up here and give a little talk. We need someone to lead us in worship and, and serve in, in two-dimensional ways. We need to serve each other. But laboring or disciple-making, in my opinion, is three-dimensional ministry. Because if I invest in you and you grow to maturity, then you can go off and do what I've been doing. Now, now we've multiplied. Now there's spiritual multiplication going on. Now we've moved to another dimension and another plane. And that's why this is the biggest ministry of all. It's the most unheralded, but it is the most important, in my opinion. It is the greatest calling in the church. And you know, discipleship is not a conviction I hold. It is a conviction that holds me. I have to do this. I have to do this. I want to do this. All right, well, let me conclude with this. And let me do it this way. Let me ask you men a question. At the end of your life, who would you rather be compared to? William Wallace or James Neal? Probably saying, I've never heard of either of those guys. I bet you have. William Wallace was the inspiration for Mel Gibson's Braveheart, right? Uh, the movie about Scotland's legendary leader, 14th century, who mobilizes the common men of Scotland to stand up against the invading army of tyrannical King Edward I. And he's something of a historic phenomenon. He may have been the first commoner in modern Western history to lead a national movement. And at the decisive battle of Stirling Bridge, where the underdog Scots um, defeated the better armed and better trained English army. The, the movie portrays uh, Wallace's speech to his soldiers. And you remember, you've probably seen this before. But uh, bear with me. I'd like, to, I'd like to read these lines to you because it's, it's pretty inspiring. Wallace says, he rides up, you know, they're all in line and they see, the, they see the English army and they're terrified because they're a bunch of just common folks up against these trained professional soldiers with, uh, with at the time, modern weapons. And, and Wallace rides up and he says, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? And an unidentified soldier says, fight against that? No, we will run, and we will live. <laughs> and Wallace says, I fight, and you may die, run and you'll live, at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. And, of course, the crowd goes wild. They attack and win the day. It's not exactly how it happened, but it, it, it makes for a better movie theater. They did win. They did win the battle, by the way. 
On the other hand, I'll bet most of you have never heard the name James Neal. Have you? Yeah, Janet nods her head. Yes, she's heard this because she's heard me tell the story ten times. Some of you have too. Yeah, but you've heard of the Alamo, haven't you? Yeah, the most popular tourist site in Texas, one of the most popular in America, where, what, 187 Texans stand up against uh, thousands of Mexican troops under the tyrannical uh, Santa Ana. I don't want to get into a political discourse. But by the way, as an aside here, um, Santa Ana had abolished the Mexican Constitution under 1824, which was the basis for which the Texans or the Anglos came and settled Texas. They were, in, at the time of the battle, they weren't fighting for independence. They were fighting to restore the Constitution because Santa Ana had thrown it out and declared himself a dictator. Um, and you know, and you no doubt have heard the names Travis, Bowie, Crockett, right? Right. So who, if I ask you then, who is the commander of the Alamo? You know, the battle was in February, late February, 1836, 12-day siege. If I ask you who the commander of the Alamo was, you know the name, right? It's John Wayne. No. Yeah. <laughs> It's John Wayne. Now, you're going to say, what, Travis, Bowie. Actually, his name was James Neal. James Neal was the commander of the Alamo. And on February 11, two weeks before the battle, he took a leave of absence, went home to take care of some personal affairs that he thought was a little more important, and he left his subordinates, um, Travis and Bowie, in charge. And he wasn't even there during the 12-day siege when all his men were killed. In fact, he disappeared into history. I can't figure out what happened to him. Probably left the state. He must have. He was never called to account. Um, the, the men of the Alamo died as heroes and Neil was forgotten. And you know, there may be no better illustration of 2 Timothy 2.4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So let me leave you by asking you this question. Who are you or who do you want to be? Wallace or Neil? You want to be the man entangled in your personal affairs? Or the man who steps up and make a, makes a difference for the kingdom? Father, I pray you would reveal to us your will uh, for our body and our church in this day. We have the benefit of um, seeing what's gone ahead of us. We have the benefit of seeing uh, what lies ahead of us through what you revealed to us by your word. I pray that you would make clear to us how we can work together as a body to rebuild that portion of the wall that you would want rebuilt in our day. Give us a heart to reach the lost, to disciple the saved, um, to work together, to be a unified body of mature disciples, wholeheartedly committed to Jesus and to the advancement of the kingdom of God in our day, Lord. Go with us this week. We have many other issues that affect our lives, Lord. Uh, it's very easy to get distracted by the things that, that very easily entangle us. But, Lord, we entrust all of those things to you. Nothing's too hard for you. You are not in any way hindered by any of the problems any of us face. You are far greater than we can possibly realize. Reveal your greatness to us. Glorify yourself in our midst, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.